In August 2019, freshly appointed Prime Minister Boris Johnson took an unannounced trip to Brixham, a historic fishing village on Devon's south coast. As he sat with his seven-quid plate of fish and chips on the harbour, he told fishing merchant Ian Perks and his son Joshua to get ready for the benefits of Brexit. Mr Perks says that Boris Johnson promised that when the Brexit rules came into force in January 2021, he and other merchants would be in for a very prosperous future. But just three and a half years on from his unforgettable run-in with Mr Johnson, Mr Perks says revenue is 30% down and he is facing laying off the majority of his staff. He says that post-Brexit fishing rules are to blame. Welcome to the iPodcast. In this week's episode, we'll be exploring why Britain's fishing merchants are still waiting for that Brexit boost. And later, we'll be taking a closer look at how the so-called deal between the monarchy and the media really works. But first, we are joined by our chief news correspondent, David Parsley, to tell us why some of Britain's fishing merchants feel they were lied to by the former PM. David, tell us a bit about Ian. Ian Perks runs his fishing merchant business in uh, in Brixham in South Devon. He's been doing it since 1976. Since Brexit, he's he's now one of the, the only ones remaining. So tell us a little bit about Brixham as an area. It's got a long history of, of fishing and the fishing industry, hasn't it? That's right. Brixham actually dates back its fishing industry to about the 14th century considered one of the birthplaces of trawling in the UK. In the 19th century, it was said to be the largest fishery in England. And then bang up to date, it's now got the, by number of fish traded, it's got the largest fish market in the UK. Brixham voted broadly to leave, didn't it? It's within the Totnes constituency, which I think was 53.9% leave. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Slightly above the, the 52, 48 that we had in the rest of the country. It's been a Conservative constituency since the 1920s. I think 1924 was the last time it didn't have a Conservative MP. And it's, along with many Conservative constituencies, it's very much a a Brexity place. And that's kind of in line, isn't it, with the fishing industry as a whole? There was quite a lot of Brexit support from that sector, if I remember rightly. I think nine out of ten people in the fishing industry voted for Brexit. And I think eight out of ten of those are now regretting it. (laughs) Well, let's talk a bit more about that. Ian has spoken about his regret regarding Brexit and maybe some of the unanticipated negative consequences on the fishing industry. What have you heard from him? Well, he told me just the other day down in Brixham, he, he told me he actually met Boris Johnson, who was there in August 2019, so just a month after he became Prime Minister. He met with him, chatted to him. He said he was a bit unsure about Brexit at the time, but was promised by Boris that it would be fantastic for him, that uh, he was looking forward to a very prosperous future. He'd take all the fish off the French and the French would be desperate to buy it back from him. It hasn't quite turned out like that for him. How has it turned out then? What have the changes been from his perspective? Well, he says he's he's 
now paying a fourfold increase in fees. And these are either export health certificates or they're the uh, customs costs. So his, his costs, his weekly costs have gone up, he says, between two and three thousand pounds a week. That's led to him considering what he does in the future. He, he's, his sales are down something like 30% since all the Brexit rules came into force in January 21. He's got 15 staff at the moment. He doesn't know how many of those staff he'll have left by the end of this year. He's, he's kind of thinking he's going to, only going to end up with three or four staff. Gosh. And was there something about the amount of fish which he's catching, which is actually going back to Europe now? Well, he, he doesn't catch the fish. He buys it off the market. His trouble is the market used to be just, just open to people actually attending the auctions. And what Brixham Market has now done since then has opened up to international trade in an online auction. I mean, you could argue that Brixham Market's just going with the times and, and he's been cut out of the loop. But it's the, it's the fees that are really killing him. So when he does buy fish from the auction, it's the fees of getting it to Europe and beyond that are really killing him. Tell me a bit more about this shift in the auctions, David. When did they go online and what impact that had on on the trade? The last two or three years since Brexit rules came into force, Brixham Market was looking for other markets simply because of Brexit. So it, it adapted. It used to be that people like Ian Perks would, would go in, touch the fish, smell the fish, pick the best fish for export. And therefore, you know, the people that were actually there were getting the, the best fish to sell on. Since then, however, because you've got competition from across Europe and the Far East, people like Ian are being cut out. However, for Brixham Market, Brexit, you could argue, has been a huge positive. Pre-Brexit, its record sales were £40 million worth of fish traded through the market. Since Brexit, and just last year, its figures came out the other week, it's now beaten that record and is now doing 50% more, something just over £60 million. So we have to be a little bit balanced. There are positives for some in the fishing industry, not for all of them. So more broadly in Brixham, what are the feelings towards Brexit six years after the vote? I mean, you could argue, some will certainly argue you get what you vote for. Ian is certainly, his business is not doing at all well. There are some taller businesses down there that are doing okay, especially if they catch things like Dover Sold and, and Skate that we see in our fish and chip shops. But there are many others, particularly those that sell anything with a shell on it. So, you know, mussels or langoustine or lobster that are struggling, hugely struggling. And they look to places like Scotland and the North East where there's plentiful cod and haddock to be sold and see them doing pretty well. And they do feel that not just Brixham, but the South West has been ignored by the government since all the new rules came into place. I'd like to ask you a bit more about the discrepancies there because Paul Treblecock, who's manager at a 300-year-old Cornish fishing company, Ocean Fish, has picked up on how Scotland appears to maybe have benefited from Brexit, while you've got people in the fishing industry down in Devon feeling that they've lost out. Why is that? Let's go back to what the the government says. The government says it's opened up £750 million worth of new opportunities for the fishing fleets across the UK. That's true, it has. But the vast majority of those opportunities are in places like Scotland and the northeast of England where the, the fish that we all eat all the time from our chippies, the cod and the haddock, is plentiful. Down in places like Brixham, Devon and Cornwall, 
they're not catching the fish that people want. They're catching the fish that Europe used to buy by the trawler load. And now they're faced with all these fees. The demand has collapsed from Europe for them. They will also continue to be banned from being able to catch fish that they once were able to catch. And they look upon Scotland and the North East as being the beneficiaries and them, and them being ignored. During the Brexit campaign, David, we saw and heard so much from Camp Leave about the merits that Brexit would have for the fishing industry, despite it being quite a small part of the economy. I mean, that's very true, but that for some reason that the fishing industry is something of a totemic sort of issue for politicians and the UK as an island who love their fish and chips. <laughs> it does only account for 0.03% of the economy, but it did, it did have a big part to play. What's happened since is that many of them have, have suffered from a fourfold increase in their costs to exporting into, into Europe. Some are benefiting, some aren't. I think certainly in the southwest they would argue that they have certainly lost out and, and they would like the government to pick up its heels and stop dragging them and, and give them the Brexit benefits they were promised. Do you pick up on any sense that they could get those Brexit promises? That anything might change for this industry? There's one specific example. Down in Cornwall, there's this fish called spur dog, which is actually a small breed of shark, and we know it as rock salmon in our chippies. There's been a ban on fishing for it since 2010, when stocks are really low. Since Brexit, the Cornish fishermen, especially in Newlyn, have been watching the Spanish and the French take all their spur dog catches away from them and they've been unable to even catch them, let alone sell them. If the government could sort that deal out, could go to the EU and say, can we start fishing now and agree that deal for spur dog catches, that, that's certainly a benefit you could see down in Cornwall. You could argue that the Brixham market adapting to Brexit by its online sales is certainly a plus point and there are other fishing businesses that are selling their catch through Brixham that are doing very well for themselves. There are more opportunities, but it does require the government to, to do something about them. And in Westminster, how are people feeling about the impact of Brexit on the fishing industry? What's the mood in camp? Because George Eustace has spoken about how the fishing benefits should have been perhaps greater than we're seeing today. Which is odd when you consider he was Environment Secretary when Brexit deal was being pushed through and during the 2019 general election with the slogan, Get Brexit Done. He was fully behind that. But now the retiring MP, who I think just last week said he was going to step down, looks like he's speaking more freely and uh, is putting the blame for the Brexit deal for fishermen squarely on the shoulders of, of Lord Frost, who was Boris Johnson's Brexit negotiator. He's claiming that Lord Voss left it to the last minute. The government didn't really care about the fishermen when it came down to it because when you look at it, I think they account for something like as small as 0.03% of the UK economy. So it wasn't a priority for the government. But now the likes of George Eustace are coming out and saying, well, they did a bad deal and now they're dragging their feet and improving that deal. Is there any hope on the horizon for the fishing industry in the Southwest? I mean, there certainly is. If you talk to the Southwest fishing leaders, they'll tell you that there are some simple things that can be put in place that would be of great benefit to them. If you look at the 12 mile limit in which um, UK fishing trawlers can go and catch exclusively, that hasn't been imposed since Brexit. It doesn't take a great deal of political motivation to get these what seem on the face of it 
simple measures put in place. And if they do that, they certainly could benefit. Lifting bans, imposing the 12 mile limit, things like that could certainly help the industry, but it needs the political will to do so. Reporting like this is what we do every single day at I. So if you want to commit to staying up to date in 2023 with trusted, impartial journalism straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators, join us now and get unlimited access to all of our journalism, subscriber-only newsletters from expert columnists and daily puzzles. For more coverage of this and plenty of other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to I. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. I for open minds. Subscribe today. The task of reporting on the royal family can be a fraught yet fascinating process. After all, how do you cover an institution that stems from an ancient idea of divine right, subject to no earthly authority? And how should the media expect to convey a family who receive public funds and require coverage of their charitable work, but also, as humans do, transgress and become newsworthy for their own behaviour? As the Duke and Duchess of Sussex claim the palace betrayed them by briefing journalists against them, features writer Kasia Delgado has been looking into how the relationship between the monarchy and the media really works. Hi, Kasia. Thanks for joining us. Firstly, tell us where you're joining us from. I'm joining you from the um, Kensington Palace, which is the official residence of the Prince and Princess of Wales. So it's very pretty. There are some tourists milling around. Very crisp, cold day. And yeah, in the presence of royal greatness. (laughs) And um, you can't see Will and Kate poking their heads out the window or anything like that? No, I was hoping they were sort of watching Netflix or something. But no, Okay. no, unfortunately not. Well, if you do see them, do invite them on. It would be great to get their take on all of this. So, Kasia, tell us a bit of an overview about the Royal Rota. How do royal reporters get their stories? So, there's a system that's been going for about 40 years, and it's called the Royal Rota. And it's a quite a strange thing that I think people outside of the UK, uh, and especially in countries where there isn't a royal family, would find quite odd. So, there's a pool of journalists from very traditional, largely traditional newspapers, broadcast media, and they are on a kind of um, rotor system where they will turn up to an official royal engagement. You know, it might be King Charles opening a school. It might be Camilla going to an orphanage. Anything that the royals do, their charity work, their ordinary duties. And then The reporters will all sort of cover it. They might talk to some people who have turned up from the public, try and get some interesting stories, some insight. And then they all share the resources and all of the stuff they've got. All the journalists share it. And then all these publications get this story, get this coverage into their newspapers. So it's a way of having 
everyone managed to cover what the royal family is doing without having all of the press in the land because obviously there are thousands and thousands of journalists and thousands of publications. So people basically take turns to get that spot and then pool it among other outlets. Exactly, yeah. And so if you're in that Royal Rota, you know that you'll be able to get stuff and you'll be able to pool it with the other people in that Royal Rota. If you're not in the Royal Rota, then you're unlikely to get that stuff. So it is quite a good thing to be in it, but you are only in it if you're quite a traditional newspaper. Been around for hundreds of years, largely. And how hard is it to get information about the Royal Rota? How transparent is that as a sort of institution, as a system? It's really difficult. I mean, in doing this piece for the I newspaper and generally in, in looking into this over the last few years, it's just incredibly hard to find out very much because it's such a strange relationship that the press has with the royal family. So it's a kind of unspoken agreement in a way. So yes, the official rotor it is a thing and it does exist, but different journalists are in it, newspapers, you're not, I mean, we know which ones are in it, but it's sort of a bit hard to tell exactly. And some people would say they're in the Royal Rota, but they're not, you know, written down as officially in the Royal Rota anywhere that I can find. So it's a bit of a murky world, actually. Now, we at the iPaper are not part of the Royal Rota. That's a conscious decision. I spoke to our editor, Ollie Duff, about it earlier. And he emphasised that what our readers value is deep reporting on the royals and the constitution, rather than the humdrum official daily events. So, Kasha, without the Royal Rota, how do we go about getting our stories? So we are coming at things from a slightly different angle. We don't have that history of reporting on all of the things that the royal family does for our readers. Instead, we get our own stories and also the people in the Royal Road to get their own stories too. So like any other beat, crime, politics, you might get some official info from the institution. But as a journalist, your real job, I would argue, and I think a lot of them would as well, is to go beyond it and find your own stories. Dig around, talk to sources, maybe some people who used to work at the palace. That's the kind of thing we do. We'll go deeper than just, you know, turning up to a royal engagement. It's a sort of twofold way of existing as a royal reporter. It strikes me that this relationship can be quite transactional, right? Because the royals get to kind of cherry pick, I guess, who is at what engagement and what gets shown. And the reporters then get their stories. So why is this such a closely managed relationship? It gets quite complicated because for most of the 20th century, the royal family didn't actually have much press attention. The press weren't really allowed into things they were doing. And I think as time changed and, you know, media advanced and technology advanced, it became clear that you can't really exist as a monarchy with no press coverage being invisible. You know, your support depends on people knowing about what you're up to and saying, oh, look, it's so good that the king did that so good that Harry did this at the Invictus Games. You know, if we don't know about it, there's no point in having a royal family, you could argue. And so it's a closely managed thing because there is this sort of strange agreement that for the royal family to live in the palaces, to have the life they have, we get to have an insight into what happens. But it cannot be that just anyone gets to see what they're up to. It has to be a sort of controlled space according to the royal family where these reporters get their insight and they are the big hitting older newspapers that traditionally their readers are interested in what the royal family kind of are up to I suppose. 
I guess it's also a way then of maintaining some privacy, right? Because you can sort of open the door on some things and close the doors on others. Absolutely. And so that's why there's always this tension, because to some extent, and this is where some of the tension around, you know, Harry's claims against the palace briefing negatively against him and sort of talking about the press being, for him, a sort of anathema to freedom, um, it's complicated because the palace does have its privacy to some degree. The people in it do get to control what comes out and they do get good, positive coverage for lots of things they do. And so then you've got the flip side where stories will come out about them that are less positive because obviously you can't just have a kind of press wing of the royal family where only good things get said about them. So there is this sort of, okay, we let these reporters in, they get to cover us in a great way and then we'll allow them to also sort of do their other reporting. But we have a bit of a mix. You mentioned that it's not always been this way, that the royals used to be kind of less interesting to the press and over time the press have been let in more. Can you give us some examples of when the royals have opened their doors and let the press in? I'm thinking of that iconic filming of the Queen's coronation. Yes, so before then, I think it was fairly unthinkable that you would have had lots of cameras and filming happen inside something like that. And actually, the Queen was very much against having the coronation filmed at all. And apparently Prince Philip sort of persuaded her that it would be a really good idea and it would kind of breed a sense of intimacy with the public and sort of let the public see what really goes on and sort of garner interest. But yeah, she was very against it because I suppose the idea of the royal family and the monarchy in general is that they are there by divine right to some extent. And so they are not subject to any earthly authority. And so having cameras filming, people sort of see what they're up to. It sort of, you might argue, undermines some of that mystique, makes them too human. And I think there was a lot of resistance against the coronation being filmed. The Queen was not happy, but it happened. And I think people were absolutely compelled by it. And it got, you know, a huge, huge, huge number of people watched it. Um, And then later there was a sort of similar thing where towards the end of the 60s, I think there was a general feeling that the royal family was a bit out of touch with people. You know, people were having a good time. There was a kind of liberal, modern way of thinking. And the royal family seemed staid and anachronistic, I think. So what happened was the palace decided, okay, let's let cameras in and they can film us for a year. Sort of big brother, but, you know, with the royal family. (laughs) And I think a bit less dramatic. But some things did happen. You know, the Queen was caught on camera sort of slagging off an ambassador and you saw them on their private planes and all these little things that you'd never seen before. And then actually, once it was shown, I think it was shown three times on TV, and then the Queen decided that was enough. The public had had enough of seeing into her world and it was a bit exposing. And she locked the film away in a vault and no one ever saw it again until quite recently when it was leaked. But apparently at the time, David Attenborough, who's quite a royalist, I think, was so outraged by the idea that the Queen would have let people into her life like this, that he emailed, well, he wouldn't have emailed, he must have written a letter to the producer and said, you're killing the monarchy because you're kind of allowing this mystery to be subverted. Gosh. Well, it's continued to evolve, hasn't it, right from when the TV cameras were allowed into the coronation to today, where we see social media playing quite a large part in the way that the royal family communicate with the public. This obviously doesn't fit in the rotor system. So how does that work? That's what's so fascinating. There's a whole nother facet to the way that royal members can have a sort of narrative out there and get things across to the public. So 
now they can have social media, Instagram and other ways of sort of saying, right, look, here's a little bit of our life for you. Here's a picture of my child. Here's a little bit about what I've been up to. And they can kind of control and have a much bigger say in how they come across. And it's like lots of celebrities. I think there's a sense that you can give an insight into your life, just curated, just the amount you want, and give the indication or the kind of impression of intimacy. But really, you're still very much controlling. You know, you're not letting cameras unfiltered into your home but you get to make people feel that you've given them something of yourself. So there are so many different ways that the royals communicate with the media, with the public, and the media is no longer just broadsheet newspapers. It's a whole host of things, and all these things kind of work alongside each other and have this sort of strange tension, and, and it's, it's a really complicated thing, actually. One branch of the royal family which relies on Instagram very heavily is the Sussexes, Harry and Meghan, And we know that they actually opted out entirely of the Royal Rota, choosing to kind of go more directly to publications and to the public at times. How does that relationship work? It was a very controversial decision, wasn't it? Yes, it was it was a really big deal in the world of the press, but also I think for the palace, other members of the royal family when they said that. So they they just decided, well, actually, we don't want to be feeding the newspapers that we seem to sort of dislike and and seem to dislike us according to their claims so we're gonna just talk to who we want and it was such a big deal because they were sort of disrupting a 40 year old system and being like nope we're doing it our own way and Harry has a an understandably very complicated relationship with the press and so we're gonna just do our own thing we're gonna go via social media we're gonna give all the people who are our fans kind of what they want pictures of our kids pictures of what we're up to pictures of our charity work And we're going to sidestep all of the traditions. And instead, we're going to talk to these newspapers that are smaller, maybe some media organisations that are a bit more modern, small, sort of independent publications. But obviously that comes with a kind of complexity. And, you know, as I sit here outside Kensington Palace, this sort of looming big building, which is very beautiful but old-fashioned, you think you can see why it would have caused controversy because the royals exist because of tradition. And Harry and Meghan really subverted that. And it got some backlash, didn't it, within sort of journalistic institutions? I think it was the National Union of Journalists who expressed some real concern over it. Yeah, and they said that, you know, it's all very well saying that they want to mix things up, that Harry and Meghan want to do things differently. And, you know, that in lots of ways is commendable. But their concern was, and I think probably the same concern that lots of journalists would have, is that do you then end up with a situation where only reporters, journalists broadcasters who have looked favourably upon Harry and Meghan, who have only said good things about them, who have only reported on the good things. Do you have a situation where they're the only people who get to report on what they're doing? The only people who get invited to things that they do, their charity work? And then what do you end up with? Is it a sort of press or PR organisation? Do Harry and Meghan get only the good press? You know, it's complicated. And I think it's a tension that exists in journalism generally, in the media, and something that everybody who exists within it has to grapple with. So where do we go from here, Kasha? We've seen that social media is becoming more and more influential and is being used more frequently to engage directly, bypassing the Royal Rota. Is the Royal Rota here to stay? Is it an institution which is still valuable to the press and to the Royal Family? I think it's really hard to imagine a future in which it doesn't continue. I cannot imagine that King Charles, after his coronation, will suddenly turn the whole thing on its head 
he's quite a traditional man. He's not in his 20s. He's king. He's seen how this works. And I don't think he's under any illusions about, you know, the complicated relationship that the palace has with the press. But I think it will continue as it is. He could change it up a bit, I suppose, have different publications in there. But I would imagine that because I think the whole of the visibility of the royal family and all the good things that he wants to or says he will do depend on people knowing about it. So you need those big papers, you need those big media organisations, you need the BBC to be there to see it. And with that, you have to accept, you know, I think a lot of journalists would argue, comes other stories, other insight, perhaps some of the things that are a bit less favourable and maybe being held to account. Um, and each publication will kind of deal with that in its own way, some better than others, of course. But ultimately, the Royal Rotor is how things have worked 40 years. And I cannot imagine going back to a time where there is more privacy or there is a sort of sense that the royals can do what they want without the press being there. And I just don't think that would work for either side. Of course, changes can be made and things can be improved, but I think it's here to stay. For daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions. So drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.